You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. We're in the series called from Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, and it might be new to some of you. Uh, it definitely is the first time I've ever preached through it. It's a complicated book to read. Uh, God says through the prophet Ezekiel, my people, you have sinned. You have sinned against me by following after other gods, kind of like this last song just sang. By worshiping them, you have rebelled against me, the Lord of lords and the God of gods. Therefore, my, punish, my patience has run out, and now you have forced me to act in judgment. Before we get into God's word today, Ezekiel 12 to 16, it's a lot of ground to cover. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way in which it sparks a sense of urgency in us. And in this case, as we read from Ezekiel, but it's all over the book, it prompts us for obedience, introspection, self-evaluation. Kind of one of those, Lord, how are we doing kind of things. And so, Lord, I pray that as we are in your word today, that you would have that conversation with us. And you would answer us, and you would show us very clearly what it is you desire of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Ezekiel 12, let's get into reading it right now. Ezekiel 12, verses 1 to 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious people. Therefore, son of man, pack your belongings for exile, and in the daytime, as they watch, set out and go where you are to another place. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious people. During the daytime, while they watch, bring out your belongings packed for exile. Then in the evening, while they are watching, go out like those who go out into exile. While they watch, dig through the wall of your house and take your belongings out through it. Put them on your shoulders as they are watching and carry them out at dusk. Cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have made you a sign to the Israelites. So I did as I was commanded. During the day I brought out my things packed for exile. Then in the evening I dug through the wall with my hands. I took my belongings out at dusk, carried them on my shoulders while they watched. And in the morning the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, did not the Israelites, that, that rebellious people, ask you, what are you doing? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This prophecy concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the Israelites who are there. Say to them, I am a sign to you. As I have done, so it will be done to you. They will go into exile as captives. So this is another one of those sign acts, prophecies, a word picture that, that Ezekiel acts out in full view of his fellow exiles in Babylon, right near his house, just like in chapter 4. This time, however, he has to act like an exile himself, leaving Jerusalem in a panicked way, hence the reason he had to dig a hole in the wall of his house in order to escape. And God's reason for this new sign act in verse 3 says, perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious people. Perhaps? I mean, does God not know the future? It's clear by what we have read so far in the chapters so far that God definitely does know what is going to happen. 
We've all been told that the exile is certain, but there will be a remnant, he promises. The wording here, though, is meant to convey more of God's desire for Israel to repent and avoid these things and not his uncertainty about what will happen. God has never wanted these outcomes for his people. But as he does say with certainty, though they are rebellious people, in other words, I know they won't repent. Verse 12, the prince among them will put this uh, uh, will put his things on his shoulder at dusk and leave. A hole will be dug in the wall for him and go through it. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land. I will spread my net for him and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylonia, the land of the Chaldeans. But he will not see it and there he will die. I will scatter to the winds all those around him, his staff and his troops. I will pursue them with a drawn sword. They will know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them them through the countries. But I will spare a few of them from the sword, famine and plague. Remember we read that a few chapters ago. So that in the nations where they go, they, they may acknowledge all their detestable practices. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This prince language that is used here of Ezekiel is also seen in chapter 37, and it is used to refer to the impact of these judgments on the line of King David, his descendants. And here in chapter 12, the immediate implication is obviously on Judah's king, Zedekiah. In fact, the Babylonians blinded him by gouging out his eyes, brought him to Babylon, and that's where he dies. And yet, even with all the chaos that's happening, the Babylonian invasion and the capture of the Davidic king, God says, listen, everything is still under my control. Five times Yahweh says, I will do this and that. And twice God explains, then they will know that I am the Lord. Interesting though, this phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord, appears 32 times in the book of Ezekiel. When people read the book of Ezekiel, they usually think to themselves, wow, weird book of judgment. And yeah, it is weird. And yeah, it's loaded with judgments. But this phrase really is the emphasis of the book from start to finish. God says, I will do these things, and they will know that I am the Lord. Here's a question for us to ask ourselves today. What things are happening in your life that God could be using to get your attention? Let me ask that again. What things are happening in your life that God could be using trying to get your attention? When reading the book of Ezekiel, even just 12 chapters in, I think we can all see that God can bring hardship on his people if he needs to. He doesn't do it indiscriminately or carelessly or even impulsively. Everything God does, he does with a great deal of care and wisdom and patience. So if something difficult is, or painful is happening in your life right now, perhaps it would be wise if you asked him if he's trying to get your attention. It may not just be bad luck that you're experiencing. I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens is from God. Clearly, we know that from the Bible as well. But when bad things happen, it is wise to check your relationship with God to see if God could be trying to get your attention. 
And here's the thing. Usually, if it is God, then what that means is, is that you've been saying no to him for so long already that he's had to resort to this to get your attention. You've been saying no, when instead you should be saying, yes, Lord. I will do these things, and then they will know that I am the Lord. Maybe it's even happening to people that you care about, and you have to watch painfully as they go through these things. And you can see God's hand all over the situation, but they can't. Well, sometimes it's that way with us too, isn't it? We all have blind spots in our relationship with God. Blind spots that are created by saying, no, Lord, too many times. So maybe it's time to ask a trusted friend, a Christian friend, if they see any blind spots in your relationship with God, if there's anything that you think that God could be doing right now to try to bring you back to himself. I will do these things, and then they will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 17. Let's go there. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, tremble as you eat your food and shudder in fear as you drink your water. Say to the people of the land, this is what the sovereign Lord says about living, those living in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel. They will eat their food in anxiety and drink their water in despair. For their land will be stripped of everything of it because of the violence of all who live there. The inhabited towns will be laid waste and the land will be desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. What is this proverb you have, uh, you have in the land of Israel? The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. So say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am, I'm going to put an end to this proverb and they will no longer quote it in Israel. Say to them, the days are near when every vision will be fulfilled, for there will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak what I will, and it shall be fulfilled without delay. For in your days, you, you rebellious people, I will fulfill whatever I say, declares the sovereign Lord. The, the word of the Lord then came to me, son of man, the Israelites are saying the vision he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies about the distant future. In other words, we don't have to worry about that right now. Therefore, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Now my words will be delayed no longer. Whatever I say will be fulfilled, declares the sovereign Lord. If you remember, back in chapter 4, Ezekiel was told by God to sketch out the city of Jerusalem on a brick. And then to kind of create siege works, uh, like as if the, the city was being invaded by an outside army. Put that around the brick. It was a prophetic warning and a sign of what was going to happen to Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, invaded her. Again, the Lord says to the prophet, to the people, then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 20. In earlier chapters... Israel dismisses Ezekiel's sign act prophecies. Their thinking was, you got to be kidding, Ezekiel. I mean, we're God's chosen people. Jerusalem is his holy city, and his temple, is his, his dwelling place is here among us. God would never do that to his sacred spaces. And then here we have them saying, that's so far in the future, we don't need to worry about it. 
Then there's also these so-called prophets, as we read the rest of the chapter in Jerusalem and in Babylon, both prophesying good fortune, good fortune to the nation to win the people's affections and favor. Well, God's patience is worn out. And here in verse 24 to 25, God says, There will be no more false visions or flattering divinations among the people of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak what I will, and it shall be fulfilled without delay. And then this indictment continues into chapter 13. Let's go to chapter 13. We'll skip a number of verses because of time. We'll go to verse 17. Now, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own imagination. Prophesy against them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the women who sew magic charms on all their wrists and make veils of various lengths for their heads in order to ensnare people. You will ensure, uh, will you ensure, sorry, will you ensnare the lives of my people but preserve your own? You have profaned me among my people for a few handfuls of barley and scraps of bread, but lying to my people who listen to lies. You have killed those who should have, who should not have died and have spared those who should not live. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against your magic charms with which you ensnare people like birds, and I will tear them from your arms. I will set free the people that you ensnare like birds. I will tear off your veils and save my people from your hands, and they will no longer fall prey to your power. Then you will know that I am the Lord, because you disheartened the righteous with your lies, when I had brought them no grief, and because you encouraged the wicked not to turn from their evil ways and to save their own lives. Therefore, you will no longer see false visions or practice divination. I will save my people from your hands, and then you will know that I am the Lord. When I was in Jerusalem, if you've been to Jerusalem and you walk through the old city of Jerusalem, uh, it's basically a maze of covered corridors with shops lining every side, just filling every street. And in many of those shops, salesmen are there and they're trying to entice you to buy their religious goods. They're loud and they're pushy. They're trying to get you to buy crosses and icons. And oddly, it, it, it's mostly Jews and Muslims who are trying to sell Christian things to Christian tourists, promising God's blessing if they buy them. But you know what? That happens in the West too. Sometimes Christians wear certain pendants or bracelets that they suppose have astrological or zodiac or magical importance. Even suppose Christian pendants like the St. Christopher pendant are worn to ward off bad and invite good into people's lives. Folks, who are we to depend on for protection while traveling? God, right? Not a dead saint. God has not placed poor St. Christopher in charge of protecting Christians everywhere. St. Christopher is not God. He's not able to see everything. He's not able to be everywhere. And he doesn't know what's happening in the world, really. He's in heaven. What's he care? And so he couldn't possibly protect the thousands upon thousands of people who are praying to him for protection while they travel. So at best, it's superstitious nonsense. At worst, it's a form of idolatry. So ditch them. Even the cross and the crucifix, if you're wearing it as a reminder of the salvation and the sacrifice that your Jesus has provided for you, that's great. But if it's for good luck, if it's a charm, then it's a superstitious idolatry. 
Folks, listen, I've heard of Christians who get their palms read for fun or, or, in, or do tarot card readings. It's not all fun. Doing these things, you're saying to God, Lord, you're not enough. You're not enough. You're saying, Lord, I call you Lord, but I don't really trust you to be Lord of my life. I don't believe you're powerful enough to help me, so i got to have all this backup. People of God, turn to the Lord only for your daily needs, for your protection, and for your scoop on the future. He is Lord, so trust him enough to be so. And as we move into chapters 14 and 15, we get more of the same of that. Here we go, verses 1 to 6, chapter 14. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet... I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this and to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols, and renounce your detestable practices. You know, because Israel and her leaders had become so absorbed in their idolatry, even setting up idols in the temple of God itself, like literally worshiping the gods of other nations, along with, and in many cases, instead of Yahweh, God says, my patience has run out, I now have to judge you. That's what chapter 15 is all about. Let's read verse 6 to 8. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. As I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for fire, so I will treat the people living in Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. Although they have come out of the fire, the fire will yet consume them. And when I set my face against them, you will know that I am the Lord. I will make the land desolate because they have been unfaithful, declares the sovereign Lord. You know, back in 1965, Ruth Graham the wife of Billy Graham, the world's evangelist, was kind of reviewing a manuscript of her husband's latest book called A World of Flame. That's an old book. She had just finished a chapter that vividly described the loss of America's moral standards, her idolatry of technology and sex, uh, but Ruth was kind of shocked by it, and she just kind of blurted out to Billy, if God doesn't punish America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That was 58 years ago. We can all see, can't we, that America, Canada, the United States, hasn't gotten any better, has it? How much longer can God's patience endure our nation's idolatry and obsession with sex and and ungodly gender identities? I don't know. Perhaps this is why we need to be reminded of the days of Ezekiel. So that we, God's people, don't get absorbed into the idolatrous culture around us. And you think, well, it can't happen to me? It happened to the Israelites then. In fact, chapter 16 is the worst of the indictments and judgments upon Israel. In chapter 16, God begins by describing Jerusalem slash Israel as his wife. It's not a chapter for kids. I'll leave out all the graphic stuff. Let's read the first few verses of 16. 
the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Jerusalem was the holy city of the Jews, but it wasn't always under Jewish control. Before King David captured it, it was a Canaanite city ruled by the Jebusites, a pagan city. And certainly both Amorite and Hittite people lived in the region contributing to the ethnic demographic of the city at that time. Listen to verse 3. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. In other words, you think your lineage is so pure and sacred? You think that just because you call yourself my people that everything is good? But the very city that you pride yourself on possessing was once pagan. It's in your line. It's in your lineage. It's in your nature. Not only is this true of Jerusalem, the city, but it's also true of Israel itself. Certainly Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, inhabited the area before King David, even before the Jebusites. But even Abraham's ancestry, Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, was pagan too. Acts, 7, uh, Acts chapter 7 has a good sort of Jewish history 101 in it, and it starts like this. Verse 2, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still living in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. In other words, he came from pagan stock. He was living in a pagan city and he himself was a pagan before he knew the Lord. And through their history, Israel saw herself as this unique people, separate and more blessed than, and even better than all the other nations on the earth because God had specially chosen Abraham to establish this everlasting covenant with them. Well, here in chapter 16, God reminds Jerusalem slash Israel that the city and even her father Abraham, for that matter, came out of existing pagan people groups. So God says to Jerusalem and Israel, listen, you're not that great. In fact, it was me who chose you. It wasn't the other way around. Ezekiel 16, verses 4 to 14 on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed in, with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in claws. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant in the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your, your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were, a star, you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and I saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corners of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an, an embroidered dress and put sandals and, and fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and I covered you with costly garments. 
I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and necklace and a necklace around your neck, and I put a ring in your nose, every earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. You were so adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest of flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, my queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you, I had given you, made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. God says, I did all this for you. And because of me, you became beautiful and you rose up to be my queen. But now we get into the rest of chapter 16. And I'm actually not going to read it out loud because it's not for a PG audience. It describes the gross sexual terms of horrible, of Israel's horrible idolatry and her unfaithfulness. But let's skip to verse 14. I'll read 14 to 15. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. God describes Jerusalem and Israel in the next 50 verses as an idolatrous wife an adulterous wife who preferred strangers to her own husband. We'll skip ahead to, uh, the, to verse 59. God even told them that they had become worse than Samaria and Sodom combined. Remember Samaria? That Samaria was the northern kingdom of Israel, once called Israel, and once completely absorbed in the pagan, finally got absorbed into the pagan woodwork of the nations around them. They're no more. But Israel's worse, or Judah's worse, Jerusalem's worse. Sodom and Gomorrah, chapter 19, Genesis chapter 19, whose wickedness was so great that God had to wipe them out with burning sulfur from heaven. Yeah, Jerusalem, Israel, they're worse now than they were. But at the end of the chapter, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, gives us a small hint of hope to hang on to. Verse 59, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have deserved my oath by breaking the covenant. You despise my oath, sorry, by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you, when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then I will make atonement for you for all you have done. You will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. In other words, he says throughout the rest of the chapter, if this was your spouse, think about it for you, if this was your spouse, could you see any hope for your future together? Well, God does. As vulgar and sick as his bride has gotten, the clear message of chapters 12 to 16, especially chapter 16, even though it's vulgar, is that God's faithfulness is sure. 
God's faithfulness is sure because he is abundant in his divine mercy and grace. It's undeserved, absolutely, but God has committed himself to his bride. I find it astonishing that after all of Israel's spiritual horroring, and that's what it was, and idolatry, God says in verse 60, Yet I, I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting, in other words, a future and full covenant with you. Verse 62, I, So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. There's that phrase again, when I do this, when I establish this new everlasting covenant with you, then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 63, then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done. God spoke this, and and Ezekiel wrote this for Israel, to Israel. But this part is a hint into even our future, our present and our future. That even we, non-Jewish God-believers, Gentiles, can now look back on that new covenant of Jesus and lay claim to it by declaring Him Lord. This new covenant was secured once and for all when Jesus, God's one and only Son, from the line of David, made atonement for the sins of Israel. That's what He was speaking about here in chapter 16. And for the sins of the world. And the way into this new covenant is through believing loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our two baptism candidates today displayed that loyalty. The Apostle Paul speaks of this atonement this way. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 to 27 and following. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is your boasting? Verse 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. That's us. Those who are of non-Jewish descent. Verse 30. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jews, and the uncircumcised through the same faith, that's the Gentiles, that's us. Now we know from Scripture, like Ezekiel, and our own experience, that rooted in us, even us who say we believe, is a tendency An unwanted tendency, for sure, but it's there. Like the old hymn says, and we sing it knowingly, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Try to tell me that this wandering heart isn't still present in God's people today. It's present in every single one of us. And the only thing to conquer it is believing loyalty in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I should never forget the message of Ezekiel. We should always be vigilant to ensure that we never give up our loyalty and our love to him for another. We should always be vigilant to ensure that we are loyal followers of Yahweh. 
For we know, don't we, as James chapter 4 says, that anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Instead, God gives more grace through the atonement of Jesus. What great promises, hey? So yeah, Ezekiel's a weird book. It's a book full of judgments. It sounds so harsh and threatening, and it is. But it's also a, a book of future hope and deliverance of the remnant, the people who continue to follow Yahweh even when the rest of the culture and the world around them, even when their own brothers and sisters stray and fall prey to idolatry, they remain solid in their commitment to Yahweh. Folks, we need to be those people in this generation, don't we? So let's not give our loyalty to another. Let's right now recommit our loyalty to Jesus. Let's pray. Worship team. Sovereign Lord, if Jesus is your sovereign Lord, say sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, we give ourselves to you afresh. We renew the covenant that you have made with us. We recommit ourselves to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Lord Jesus, you made atonement for our sin, for our idolatry, for the lives we were living as pagan people, ungodly, unworthy. And when we heard the message, and when we responded to Jesus, you, Jesus, we turned our hearts over to you. And we do so afresh today, knowing full well that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. But Lord, let us not wander far. And today and every Sunday, we renew our commitment to you. Make us strong in our faith, Lord, so that we will not wander. And let us be a testimony to the world of your saving grace.